All right, welcome back. In today's government podcast, we're going to look at civil liberties and civil rights. May end up dividing them into two podcasts, but we shall see. So first going to start off with civil liberties. So civil liberties, these are uh, individual rights, personal freedoms that governments cannot interfere. You know, they are protecting Americans from the government and certain actions. Whereas civil rights, these are protections of citizen equality provided by the government. They've been expanded dramatically since the middle of the 20th century when like the African-American civil rights movement took center stage, for instance. But, uh, Let's dive in here. So, the whole origin of the Bill of Rights, it really lies with those that opposed the Constitution. So, when the first Congress under the newly ratified Constitution met in April of 1789, the most important item of business was the proposal to add a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. It was proposed at the Philadelphia Convention. The Federalists, led by Alexander Hamilton, argued it was unnecessary in the proposed constitutional in the proposed constitution, sorry, and would also be dangerous. Uh, first, according to Hamilton, he said a Bill of Rights would be irrelevant to a national government that was only given delegated powers in the first place. To put restraints on powers which are not granted could provide a pretext for governments trying to claim more powers than their actually granted. Second is the Constitution to Hamilton and Federalists. It was a Bill of Rights in and of itself, containing provisions that amounted to a Bill of Rights without requiring additional amendments. So Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, this includes the right of habeas corpus. So Habeas corpus, this is a court order demanding an individual in custody be brought in court and shown the reason for detention. So this prohibits the government from depriving a person of liberty without explaining the reason before a judge. And the Bill of Rights, when we look at it, it may have well should have been called or possibly given a title of the Bill of Liberties because the provisions incorporated in it are seen as defining a private sphere of personal liberty that is free from government restrictions. And civil liberties, these are protections of citizens from improper government action. And some of the restraints are uh, substantial liberties, which puts limits on what the government shall and shall not have the power to do. Other restraints are procedural liberties, which are restraints on how the government is supposed to act. So procedural liberties are usually grouped under the general category of due process of law. Other restraints, oh, I already mentioned procedural liberties, huh? But uh, the right of every citizen to be protected against arbitrary action by national governments, this is all procedural liberties. The best known procedural rule is that of an accused person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. And this rule does not question the government's power to punish someone for committing a crime. Substantive and procedural restraints together identify the realm of civil liberties. In contrast, 
Civil rights are the obligations imposed on government to take positive action to protect citizens from any illegal actions by government agencies and by other private citizens. And civil rights didn't become part of the Constitution until 1868, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, which sought to provide for each citizen the equal protection of the laws. So, 14th Amendment, this nationalizes the Bill of Rights through incorporation. So, the Bill of Rights was understood to apply only to national government and not the states for 70 years after the Constitution was ratified. And the Civil War shed new light on state versus national government power. The 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution after the Civil War. And it states, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And the Supreme Court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment for 100 years didn't extend the Bill of Rights to all citizens. Within five year, years of ratification of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court was making decisions as though the amendment was never even really adopted. And in 1897, the Supreme Court does hold that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment did prohibit use without just compensation. And what the Supreme Court did was they had selectively incorporated under the 14th Amendment only the property protection provision of the 5th Amendment and no other clause of the 5th or any other amendment of the Bill of Rights. And so only property was incorporated into the 14th Amendment as a limitation on state power. No further expansion of civil liberties through the 14th Amendment occurred until 1925 when the Supreme Court held... Sorry... So in 1925, Supreme Court held freedom of speech is among the fundamental personal rights and liberties protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment from impairment by the states. And so Supreme Court, they would add freedom of the press to the list in 1931. In 1939, freedom of assembly and petitioning the government for redress of grievances would be added. And so what selective incorporation is, is this is the process where different protections in the Bill of Rights are incorporated or applied to the states, part by part, piece by piece, using the 14th Amendment, and therefore guaranteeing the citizens protection from state as well as national government. And this continued to occur gradually up until about 2010. And so the final provision of the Bill of Rights to be incorporated by the Supreme Court was the Second Amendment, which protects the right to bear arms. And so the best way to examine the Bill of Rights today is kind of a simple way. Take each of the major provisions one at a time, right? Some are settled areas of law, others aren't. So first looking at the First Amendment, freedom of religion, right? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And so when it comes to religion, there's two clauses, establishment and free exercise. And the establishment clause and the idea of no law regarding the establishment of religion can be interpreted in several ways. The first is the government cannot establish an official church. 
Second is the government may not take sides among competing religions, but may provide assistance to religious institutions or ideas as long as it shows no favoritism. Third is the wall of separation between church and state. This is Jefferson's idea, and this cannot be breached by the government. So the Supreme Court has been consistently strict in the area of public education in cases of school prayer, striking down practices like Bible reading, non-denominational prayer, reading prayers over a public address system, during a football game, even a moment of silence for meditation, which when you say meditation specifically, that is a form of belief or faith, and you cannot condone that. So as a institution anyway, sorry, you can't support that over something else. But on the other hand, Supreme Court has been quite permissive and inconsistent about the public display of religious symbols like city-sponsored nativity scenes in commercial or municipal areas. So the free exercise clause, uh, this protects citizens' right to believe and to practice any religion. It also protects the right to choose not to practice a religion. And so in recent years, the principle of free exercise has been bolstered by statutes prohibiting religious discrimination by uh, public and private entities in a variety of realms, including hiring, land use, treatment of prison inmates. But uh, also in the First Amendment, we have freedom of speech and press to ensure the free exchange of ideas, right? Democratic nation cannot function without free and open debate. Such debate moreover, is seen as an essential mechanism for determining the quality or validity of competing ideas. And what is sometimes called the marketplace of ideas receives a good deal of protection from the courts. 1938, Supreme Court held that any legislation that attempts to restrict these fundamental freedoms is to be subjected to a more exacting judicial scrutiny than are most other types of legislation. And so this higher standard of judicial review came to be called strict scrutiny. And the doctrine of strict scrutiny places a heavy burden of proof on the government if it seeks to regulate or restrict speech. It's also going to occur with uh, racial classifications as well. But over the past 200 years, the courts have scrutinized many different forms of speech and constructed different principles and guidelines for each. Political speech was the activity of greatest concern to the framers of the Constitution, even though some found it the most difficult provision to tolerate. Within seven years of the ratification of the Bill of Rights in 1791, Congress was going to adopt the infamous Alien and Sedition Acts, which, among other things, makes it a crime to say or publish anything that might tend to defame or bring into disrepute the government of the United States. So quite clearly, the actions... The act's intentions were to criminalize the very conduct given absolute protection by the First Amendment. They would be repealed when Jefferson becomes president. The first modern free speech case arose immediately after World War I and involved people who have been convicted under the Espionage Act of 1917 for opposing U.S. involvement in the war. And Supreme Court upheld the Espionage Act and refused to protect the speech rights of the defendants on the clear and present danger to national security, which is what comes as the clear and present danger test. So, in 
So the First Amendment does treat freedoms of religion and political speech as equal to freedoms of assembly and petition, which is speech associated with action, right? The government may not prohibit speech-related activities such as demonstrations or leafleting in public areas traditionally used for that purpose, though the government may impose rules designed to protect the public safety so long as these rules do not discriminate against particular viewpoints. And Supreme Court has protected actions that are designed to send a political message. For example, back in 1984 at the Republican National Convention in Dallas, Texas, there was flag burning that took place. But Snyder versus Phelps in 2011, uh, what happened was Westboro Baptist Church was protesting at military funerals and they would carry signs with slogans saying things like, thank God for dead soldiers. And they were claiming the deaths of soldiers were a sign that God disapproved of acceptance of homosexuality in the U.S. Closer to uh, the original intent of the Assembly and Petition Clause is the category of speech plus, which is speech accompanied by conduct or physical activity such as sit-ins, picketing, and demonstrating. Protection of this form of speech under the First Amendment is conditional. Restrictions imposed by state or local authorities are acceptable if property properly balanced by considerations of public order. And courts consistently protect such assemblies under the First Amendment. State and local laws regulating such activities are very closely scrutinized and frequently overturned. But the same assembly on private property is quite another matter and can be regulated. So, for example, directors of a shopping center or like mall, they can lawfully prohibit an assembly protesting a war or supporting a ban on abortion in their areas. So assemblies in public areas can also be restricted in some circumstances, uh, especially when the assembly or demonstration jeopardizes the health, safety, or rights of others. So one group that seems to enjoy just a limited right of free speech is public school students. Back in 1986, Supreme Court upheld the punishment of a high school student for making sexually suggestive speech, and the court opinion held such speeches interfered with the school's goal of teaching students the limits of socially acceptable behavior. Two years later, Supreme Court restricted student speech and press rights even further by defining them as part of the educational process, not to be treated with the same standard as adult speech in a regular public forum. But freedom of the press is broad, right? With the exception of broadcast media, which is subject to federal regulation, press is protected under the doctrine against prior restraint. And prior restraint, these are efforts made by a governmental agency to block the publication of material it deems libelous or harmful in some other way, otherwise known as censorship. And New York Times versus United States back in 1971. This is known as the Pentagon Papers case. So what happened was the Supreme Court ruled the government can't block publication of secret Defense Department documents that had been given to the New York Times by an opponent of the Vietnam War who had stolen the documents. But some speech has just limited protection and four categories kind of fall outside the guarantees of the First Amendment and are outside the realm of absolute protection then. One is libel and slander. 
Two is obscenity and profanity. Three are fighting words. And four is commercial speech. So with libel and slander, if a written statement is made in reckless disregard of the truth and is considered damaging to the victim because it is malicious, scandalous, and defamatory, it can be punished as libel. If an oral statement of such a nature is made, it can be punished as slander. So today, most libel suits involve freedom of the press, and the realm of free press is enormous. Historically, newspapers are subject to the law of libel, which provides that newspapers print false, that printed false and malicious stories could be sub compelled to pay damages to those they defamed. In recent years, the victim must prove actual malice and or reckless disregard deliberately, which is very difficult to prove, right? So if libel and slander cases can be difficult because of the problem of determining the truth of statements and whether those statements are malicious and damaging, cases involving pornography and obscenity are even trickier. Right. So back in 1957, the Supreme Court used a definition of obscenity that caused a lot more confusion. So Justice William Brennan at the time, in writing the court's opinion, defined obscenity as speech or writing that appeals to the prurient interest. That is, whose purpose is to excite lust as it appears to the average person applying contemporary community standards. 1964, Justice Potter Stewart confessed that although he found Pornography impossible to define. I know it when I see it. So there's been a lot of uh, confusion when it comes to that. So an effort was made to strengthen the restrictions in 1973 when Supreme Court expressed its willingness to define pornography as a work that one as a whole is deemed prurient by the average person according to community standards to depict sexual conduct in a patently offensive way. And three, lack serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. So pornography would then be determined by local rather than national standards. Fighting speech. So speech can lose its protected position when it moves toward the sphere of action. So expressive speech is protected until it moves from the symbolic realm to the realm of actual conduct, to direct incitement of damaging conduct with the use of so-called fighting words. Right. So once it progresses to violence, your freedom of speech is not protected then anymore. Commercial speech. So commercial speech, such as newspaper or television advertisements, has only First Amendment protection because it can't be considered political speech. So prohibition of false misleading advertising by the Federal Trade Commission is an old and well-established power of the federal government. Supreme Court long ago approved constitutionality of laws prohibiting electronic media from carrying a from carrying cigarette advertising. It also upheld city ordinances prohibiting posting of all signs on public property as long as the ban is total so that there is no hint of censorship. Then there's the Second Amendment. So Second Amendment was included in the Bill of Rights to provide for well-regulated militias to enforce security of a free state, which were to be the backing of the government for the maintenance of local public order. So militia was understood at the time of the founding 
to be a military or police resource for state governments. Militias were specifically distinguished from professional armies, which came within the sole jurisdiction of Congress. So the court's silence on the application of the Second Amendment ended in 2008 when it made the first of two rulings in favor of expansive rights of gun ownership by individuals. So the first case was going to be the District of Columbia versus Heller. It challenged a D.C. law that had banned handguns, but not rifles or shotguns, which is kind of interesting, yeah. And then in 2010, there was McDonald versus Chicago. And the court applied the Second Amendment to the states, making this decision the first new incorporation decision by the court in 40 years. And Chicago law had banned handguns within city limits. And we also had the rights of the criminally accused based on due process of law. So except for the First Amendment, most of the battle to apply the Bill of Rights to the states was fought over the various protections granted to people who are accused of a crime who are suspects in the commission of a crime or who are brought before the court as a witness to a crime. So the fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth amendments, when we take them together, these are the essence of due process of law. Even though, you know, the key phrase does not appear until the very last words of the fifth amendment. So the fourth amendment, this protects against unlawful searches and seizures. It states the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So the whole purpose of the Fourth Amendment is to guarantee the security of citizens against unreasonable or improper searches and seizures. The 1961 case Map versus Ohio illustrates one of the most important principles that has grown out of the Fourth Amendment, which is the exclusionary rule. So the exclusionary rule, which is the ability of the courts to exclude evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment, like barring evidence obtained during an illegal search, then doesn't get introduced in a trial. And this is the most dramatic restraint. The exclusionary rule is imposed by the courts on police behavior because it rules out precisely the evidence that produces a conviction. It frees those people who are known to have committed a crime of which they have been accused because the evidence was obtained improperly, though few convictions are actually lost because of excluded evidence. So, But finally, the Fourth Amendment places limits on government surveillance of individuals, an ongoing and very controversial issue in the United States today, especially since the Patriot Act. But the Fifth Amendment covers court-related rights. It states, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself nor be deprived of liberty, life, life, liberty, or property, sorry, without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So the first clause of the Fifth Amendment sets forth the right to a grand jury. And this is a jury that determines whether sufficient evidence is able to justify a trial. They do not rule on guilt or innocence, only determine whether a trial is warranted. 
So if the accused person is to be held in custody, the prosecutor has to take the available information before a judge to determine that the evidence shows probable cause. Double jeopardy clause. So the nor shall any person be a subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. This is the constitutional protection from double jeopardy is a protection to prevent a person from being tried more than once for the same crime. Back in 1937, there was a case called Palco versus Connecticut and a Connecticut court found Frank Palco guilty of second degree murder sentenced him to life in prison. Unhappy with the verdict, the state of Connecticut appealed the conviction to its highest state court, won the appeal, got a new trial, and then succeeded in getting Palco convicted of first-degree murder. Supreme Court majority agreed this could indeed be considered a case of double jeopardy. They decided double jeopardy wasn't one of the provisions of the Bill of Rights incorporating the Fourth Amendment as a restriction on the powers of states. And Palco was executed for the crime because he lived in Connecticut, rather than in a state whose constitution included a guarantee against double jeopardy. Another aspect of Fifth Amendment is self-incrimination. So perhaps the most significant liberty found in the Fifth Amendment, one of the most familiar to so many Americans that watch television crime shows, is the guarantee that no citizen shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. So... Coming from Miranda versus Arizona. Ernesto Miranda, uh, he was identified by a rape victim in a lineup, signed a confession, later argued in appeal he was not informed of the right to remain silent or his right to consult an attorney. So, and that confession was not made voluntary, voluntarily. So followed Miranda... Following one of the most intensely and widely criticized decisions ever handed down by the Supreme Court, Miranda produced the rules that the police must follow before questioning an arrested criminal suspect, which is the Miranda rule, the Miranda rights. Persons under arrest must be informed prior to police interrogation of their rights, specifically like to remain silent and to have the benefit of legal counsel. Many of you probably know the Miranda warning or the Miranda rights. So you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you in the court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided to you. Do you understand these rights as they have been read to you? That is pretty much what the Miranda warning is. And if they don't properly Mirandize someone verbatim with the exact words they're supposed to use, it gets tossed out. It gets tossed out on arraignment. That doesn't mean they can't arrest the person again later and properly Mirandize them. But this is just showing that, you know, they have to say it exactly as they're supposed to. Otherwise, it gets tossed out. Eminent domain. This is another part of the Fifth Amendment. So this is the power of any government to take private property for public use. Eminent domain. So the Fifth Amendment puts limits on this inherent power through procedures that require a showing of a public purpose and the provision of fair payment for the government's taking of someone's property. The Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been ascertained 
by law and to be informed of the nature and the cause of the accusation to be confronted with the witnesses against him to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense so like the exclusionary rule of the fourth amendment and the self-incrimination clause of the fifth amendment the right to counsel provision of the sixth amendment is notable for sometimes freeing defendants who seem to be to the public to be guilty as charged right other provisions like right to a speedy trial and right to confront witnesses before an impartial jury, they aren't as controversial. One big case with right to counsel, 1963, Gideon versus Wainwright. And for 51 years of his life, Clarence Earl Gideon, he seemed overtly guilty of the crime he was convicted of, which was breaking and entering a pole hall in Panama City, Florida. He was sentenced to five years. He became the jailhouse lawyer, basically, in the prison that he was sent to because every prison has a law library every single one of them does and so he made his own appeal on a handwritten petition and eventually won the landmark ruling on the right to counsel in all felony cases and right to counsel was later expanded beyond just serious crimes to any trial with or without a jury that holds the possibility of imprisonment the eighth amendment bars cruel and unusual punishment so excessive bail shall not be required nor excessive fines imposed nor criminal or nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted so one of the greatest challenges to in interpreting this provision consistently arises over the death penalty so 1972 supreme court overturned several state death penalty laws not because they were cruel and unusual but because they were being applied unevenly and blacks and latinos were much more likely than whites to be sentenced to death the poor more likely than the rich and men more likely than women so soon after this decision a majority of states revised their capital punishment provisions to meet the court standards and supreme court reaffirmed that the death penalty could be used if certain standards are met and supporters the death penalty say well the death penalty's deterrent effects on other potential criminals right opponents say well it's not proven to deter crime america is the only western nation that still executes criminals it's very time consuming and expensive and we also have right to privacy right uh the word privacy never appears in the Bill of Rights, actually, there is general agreement that a right to privacy emanates from the first 10 amendments, even though judges and legal scholars still continue to disagree about where the right comes from. The idea behind the right to privacy is simple. People have a right to be left alone from government or other persons interference in certain personal areas. So the sphere of privacy was drawn by the Supreme Court in 1965 when they ruled a Connecticut statute forbidding use of contraceptives violated the right in marital privacy. This was known as Griswold versus Connecticut. And the right to privacy was confirmed and extended in 1973 in a very important but controversial privacy decision, Roe v. Wade. And this decision established a woman's right to seek an abortion and prohibited states from making abortion a criminal act prior to the point at which the fetus becomes viable, which back in 1973 was at the 27th week. And it's important to emphasize that the preference for privacy rights and for their extension to include rights of women to control their own bodies was not something invented by the Supreme Court in a vacuum. Most states did not regulate abortions in any fashion until the 1840s, at which time only six of the 26 existing states had any regulations governing abortion. 
So many states have begun to ease their abortion restrictions well before the Roe v. Wade decision, but a number of states have reinstated some restrictions on abortion since, including uh, lowering the viability standard to 20 weeks, which happened in Texas, 12 weeks in Arkansas, even six weeks in North Dakota. While the Supreme Court has continued to affirm a woman's right to seek an abortion, it has limited the right approving restrictions as long as they do not pose an undue burden on women. So like any important principle, once privacy was established as an aspect of civil liberties protected by the Bill of Rights through the 14th Amendment, it kind of took on a life of its own. So in a number of important decisions, Supreme Court and the lower federal courts sought to protect rights that couldn't be found in the text of the Constitution, but could be discovered through a study of philosophic sources of fundamental rights. So, back in uh, 1986, the Supreme Court, they, with the case known as Bowers v. Hardwick, they asserted that, well, there is no constitutional protected right or protection of homosexual consensual activity back in 1986 they said that but then that would be overturned in 2003 with Lawrence versus Hardwick so Lawrence or Lawrence v Texas my apologies Lawrence versus Texas the case overturned a Texas law that banned certain sexual acts among same-sex partners even if it was consensual and the court concluded petitioners are entitled to respect for their private lives the state cannot demean their existence or control their destiny by making their private sexual conduct a crime. So for the first time, gay men and lesbians could claim right to privacy protection. Finally. So that is civil liberties. I'm going to include another segment on this podcast on civil rights. So stay tuned. All right, in this segment, we're going to look at civil rights protections, civil rights. All right, so with the adoption of the 14th Amendment in 1868, civil rights have become part of the Constitution, guaranteeing each citizen through equal protection of the laws. So together with the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, and then the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed voting rights for black men, it seemed to provide a guarantee of civil rights for the newly freed black slaves. But the general language of the 14th Amendment meant that its support for civil rights could be even more far-reaching. And so the very simplicity of the Equal Protection Clause left it open to interpretation. And so what it says is, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So the... This provision guarantees citizens the equal protection of the laws, and this launched a century of political movements and legal efforts to press for racial equality. So the Supreme Court initially wasn't ready to enforce civil rights aspects of the 14th Amendment, uh, then it, and it really wasn't ready to enforce the civil liberties provisions either. Resistance to equality for African Americans in the South led Congress to adopt the Civil Rights Act back in 1875, which attempted to protect blacks from discrimination by proprietors of hotels, theaters, and other public accommodations. But the court declared the Civil Rights Act of 1875 unconstitutional on the grounds that it sought to protect blacks against discrimination by private businesses. The 14th Amendment 
according to the court's interpretation, was intended to protect individuals only from discrimination that arose from actions by public officials of state and local governments. So in 1896, the infamous case Plessy versus Ferguson, the court went further by upholding a Louisiana statute that required segregation of the races on trolleys and other public carriers and by implication in all public facilities, including schools. So Homer Plessy, he was a man defined as being one-eighth black, had violated a Louisiana law that provided for equal but separate accommodations on trains and a $25 fine for any white passenger who sat in a car reserved for blacks or any black passenger who sat in a car reserved for whites. Supreme Court held the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause was not violated by laws requiring segregation of the races and public accommodations as long as the facilities were equal. Right? This established the separate but equal rule. So people generally pretended that segregated accommodations were equal as long as some accommodation for blacks existed. But the Supreme Court had begun to change its position on racial discrimination before World War II by being stricter about the criterion for equal facilities in the separate but equal rule. 1938, for example, the court rejected Missouri's policy of paying the tuition of qualified blacks to out-of-state law schools rather than admitting them to the University of Missouri Law School. Similar rulings in the 40s and 50s started chipping away at separate but equal. None of these pre-1954 cases confronted separate but equal and the principle of racial discrimination head-on. They gave black leaders encouragement, though, to believe that recent legal precedent might change the constitutional framework itself. So a lot of the legal work was done by the Legal Defense and Educational Fund of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Formed in 1909 to fight discrimination against African Americans, the NAACP was the most important civil rights organization during the first half of the 20th century. In the fall of 1952, the court had on its docket cases from Delaware, D.C., Kansas, South Carolina, and Virginia challenging constitutionality of school segregation. So of these, the case filed in Kansas became the chosen one by the NAACP. It seemed to be ahead of the pack in the district court. It had the special advantage of being located in a state outside the Deep South, which would minimize local opposition to a favorable decision. So this would be known as Brown versus Board of Education at the Board of Brown versus the Board of Education at Topeka, Kansas. Sorry. So back in September 1950, Oliver Brown took his daughter Linda to the closer all-white summer school, Sumner School, to enter her into third grade in defiance of state law and local segregation rules. So in deciding the Brown case, the court, to the surprise of many, rejected as inconclusive all the learned arguments about the intent and the history of the 14th Amendment and committed itself instead to considering only the consequences of segregation. So the Brown decision altered the constitutional framework in two fundamental respects. First, after Brown, the states no longer had the power to use race as a criterion of discrimination in law. Second, the national government from then on had the power and eventually the obligation to intervene with strict regulatory policies against the discriminatory actions of state or local governments, school boards, employers, and a lot of others in the private sector. 
So Brown v. Board withdrew all constitutional authority to use race as a criterion for exclusion. It signaled more clearly the court's determination to use the strict scrutiny test in cases related to racial discrimination. This meant the burden of proof would fall on the government to show that the law in question was constitutional, not on the challengers to show the law's unconstitutionality. But Brown was just a small move. So first, most states refused to cooperate until sued. Many ingenious schemes were used to try and delay obedience, like states paying tuition for white students to attend newly created private academies. Second, while school boards began to cooperate by eliminating legally enforced school segregation, what is referred to as de jour segregation, meaning literally by law, extensive actual segregation remained. So what is referred to as de facto segregation, meaning by fact where races are still segregated even though the law does not require it. So school segregation in the North as well as in the South remained a consequence of racially segregated housing patterns that were untouched by Brown. So in a third way, discrimination in employment, public accommodations, juries, voting, and other areas of social and economic activity wasn't directly touched by Brown. So 10 years after Brown... Fewer than 1% of black school-aged children in the Deep South were attending schools with whites. So, kind of makes it obvious to all observers that the adjudication alone wasn't going to succeed. So, the goal of equal protection required positive or affirmative action by Congress and by federal agencies. Organized civil rights demonstrations began to mount slowly but surely after Brown. Only a year after Brown, black citizens in Montgomery, Alabama, challenged the city's segregated bus system with a year-long boycott. And the boycott began with the arrest of Rosa Parks, who refused to give up her bus seat for a white man. By the 1960s, many organizations that made up the civil rights movement had accumulated experience, built networks capable of launching massive direct action campaigns against Southern segregationists. So the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, many other organizations have built a movement that stretched all across the South, using the media to attract nationwide attention and support. The image of protesters being beaten, attacked by police dogs, set upon with fire hoses, does a lot to win sympathy for the cause of black civil rights and discredit state and local governments in the South. In the massive March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. would stake out the movement's moral claims in his famous I Have a Dream speech. Protests against discriminatory practices toward African Americans didn't end in the 1960s. Back in 2012, more recently, a variety of protests coalesced under the banner Black Lives Matter to focus attention on allegations of police misconduct directed at African Americans. The movement took off after the shooting of an unarmed black teenager by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri back in 2014 and spread across the nation as the media carried reports, photos, and videos of police violence against blacks all across the country. And African Americans have long asserted that they're often victims of racial profiling, more likely than whites to be harassed or arrested by the police. Police departments have always replied blacks are more likely than whites to be engaged in criminal activity. Reports and even film footage of killings, however, proved difficult for the police to justify and seemed likely to lead to new rules governing police behavior, like body cams that they have to wear. 
The right to equal protection of the laws could be established and, to a certain extent, implemented by the courts. But after a decade of very frustrating efforts, courts and Congress ultimately came to the conclusion that the federal courts alone were not adequate to the task of challenging the social rules and that legislation and administrative action would be needed. So Congress used their legislative powers to help make equal protection of the laws a reality by passing the Civil Rights Act of 1964, prohibiting major forms of discrimination against racial, ethnic, national, and religious minorities and women in voting registration, schools, public accommodations, and the workplace. So, after the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, public accommodations quickly removed some of the most visible forms of racial discrimination. Signs defining colored and white restrooms, water fountains, waiting rooms, seating arrangements were all removed and a host of other practices that relegated black people to separate and inferior arrangements were ended. In addition, the federal government filed more than 400 anti-discrimination suits in federal courts against hotels, restaurants, taverns, gas stations, and other public accommodations. The 1964 Civil Rights Act also declared discrimination by private employers and state governments, like school boards, illegal, then went further by providing for administrative agencies to help the courts implement these laws. The act, for example, authorized the executive branch through the Justice Department to implement federal court orders to desegregate schools and to do so without having to wait for individual parents to bring complaints. The act also provided that federal grants and aid to state and local governments for education be withheld from any school system practicing racial segregation. Federal courts and the Justice Department have also fought employment discrimination through the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed job discrimination by all private and public employers, including governmental agencies such as fire and police departments that employed more than 15 workers. So the 1964 Act makes it unlawful to discriminate in employment on the basis of color, religion, sex, or national origin, as well as race. So in order to enforce fair employment practices, the national government could revoke public contracts for goods and services and refuse to engage in contracts with any private company that could not guarantee that its rules for hiring, promotion, and firing were non-discriminatory. But one problem was that the complaining party had to show that deliberate discrimination was the cause of the failure to get a job or a training opportunity. Rarely, of course, does an employer explicitly admit discrimination on the basis of race, sex, or any other illegal reason. So, recognizing that the courts have allowed aggrieved parties or the plaintiffs to make their case if they can show that an employer's hiring practices had the effect of exclusion, even if they cannot show the intention to discriminate. So, although 1964 was the most important year for civil rights legislation, it was not the only important year. In 1965, Congress significantly strengthened legislation protecting voting rights by barring literacy and other tests as a condition for voting in six southern states, by making it a crime to interfere with voting, and by providing for the replacement of local registrars with federally appointed registrars in counties designated by the Attorney General as significantly resistant to registering eligible blacks to vote. 
that the right to vote was further strengthened with ratification in 1964 of the 24th Amendment, which abolished the poll tax and later with legislation permanently outlawing literacy tests and mandating bilingual ballots or oral assistance for speakers of Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Native American languages. The 1965 law finally broke the back of voting discrimination, meaning it took almost 100 years to carry out the 15th Amendment. So in the long run, laws extending and protecting voting rights could be could prove to be the most effective of all the great civil rights legislation because the progress in black political participation produced by these acts has altered the shape of American politics. A new area of controversy in the realm of voting rights concerns so-called voter ID laws. Yeah. So after. The Voting Rights Act was passed. The gap by 1972 between black and white registration in seven deep south, old south, old confederacy states, uh, the gap had lessened or declined. Now it increased voter registration among African Americans and therefore that gap was narrow. But voter ID laws, there's about 34 states that have enacted legislation requiring voters to show positive identification at the polls. As of 2016, seven of these states required photo ID, like a driver's license, in order to vote. Republicans generally support such laws, arguing that they deter voter fraud. Democrats generally oppose the laws, countering they're particularly burdensome to poor, young, and minority voters who say they are less likely than others to possess such IDs. Critics also note that virtually no documented cases of voter ID fraud exist, despite intensive efforts to uncover them. So several studies of whether such laws suppress voter turnout have been conducted, but produced inconclusive results. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did not address housing, but in 1968, Congress passed another Civil Rights Act specifically to outlaw housing discrimination. Called the Fair Housing Act, the law prohibited discrimination in the sale or rental of most housing, eventually covering nearly all of the nation's housing. Housing was among the most controversial discrimination issues because of deeply entrenched patterns of residential segregation all across the U.S. So even though it pronounced some very sweeping goals, the Fair Housing Act had very little effect on housing segregation because its enforcement mechanisms were so weak. Individuals believing they had been discriminated against had to file suit themselves, and the burdens on the individual to prove housing discrimination had occurred, even though such discrimination is often subtle and very difficult to document. So another kind of discrimination related to discriminatory home mortgage lending practices remains significant. So-called predatory lending, offering loans with interest rates higher than prevailing market values, including subprime mortgages, led to charges that such loans are offered to African Americans and Latinos, while whites with similar incomes are offered loans with lower interest rates. Lawsuits over these practices have resulted in the largest financial settlements ever issued for lending discrimination. So, even before equal employment laws started having a positive effect on the economic situation of blacks, something far dramatic began to happen, and it was the universalization of civil rights. The right not to be discriminated against was being successfully claimed by other groups listed in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, those defined by sex, religion, national origin, and eventually by still other groups, by age or sexual orientation. So this extension of civil rights became the new frontier of the civil rights struggle, and women emerged with the greatest prominence in this struggle. 
So in many ways, the Civil Rights Act fostered the growth of the women's movement, although critics noted the movement largely benefited white women. The first major campaign of the National Organization for Women, or NOW, involved picketing the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, for its refusal to ban sex-segregated employment advertisements. NOW also sued the New York Times for continuing to publish such ads after the passage of the act. Another organization, the Women's Equity Action League, pursued legal action on a wide range of sex discrimination issues, filing lawsuits against law schools and medical schools for discriminatory admission policies, for example. Building on these victories and the growth of the women's movement, feminist activists sought to add an Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, to the Constitution. The proposed amendment was short. It stated that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The amendment supporters believe such a sweeping guarantee of equal rights was a necessary tool for ending all discrimination against women or for making gender roles more equal. Opponents charged it would be socially disruptive and would introduce changes like unisex bathrooms. Most Americans didn't want that. The amendment easily passed Congress 1972, won quick approval in many state legislatures, but it fell three states short of the 38 needed to ratify it by the 1982 deadline. But despite the failure of the ERA, efforts to stop gender discrimination expanded dramatically as an area of civil rights law. So in the 1970s, the conservative Burger Court under Chief Justice Warren Burger helped establish gender discrimination as a major and highly visible civil rights issue. The Supreme Court refused to treat gender discrimination as the equivalent of racial discrimination, but it did make it easier for plaintiffs to file and win suits on the basis of gender discrimination. Courts began to find sexual harassment a form of sex discrimination during the late 1970s. And most of the law on sexual harassment had been developed by courts through interpretation of Title VII, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in 1986, the Supreme Court recognized two forms of sexual harassment, the quid pro quo type, which involves a very explicit or strongly implied threat that submission is a condition of continued employment, the hostile environment type also, which involves offensive or intimidating employment conditions amounting to sexual intimidation. So... But the ERA, even though, like I mentioned, three states failed the ratification by that 1982 deadline, but in 2017, 2018, and earlier this year, you would see Illinois, I believe it was, I may have that state wrong, but Virginia was another, and Nevada. They all ratified the Equal Rights Amendment, and... Earlier in 2020 this year, the House actually passed lifting the deadline. It passed lifting the deadline so that way the ERA can officially be passed. It's supposed to go to the Supreme Court for debate and consideration, but it's yet to be brought up on the Senate floor. So it's unsure that this is actually going to happen now. But it's still not dead. The ERA still continues to be introduced every single year since it failed ratification in 1982. And there is still hope that we will have an Equal Rights Amendment. So. 
Oy. Latinos and Asian Americans, they are another group that have fought for their rights. So although the Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed discrimination, outlawed, sorry, discrimination on the basis of national origin, limited English proficiency, proficiency kept many Asian Americans and Latinos from full participation in American life. Two developments in the 1970s established rights for language minorities. So in 1974, Supreme Court ruled in the case Lau versus Nichols, a suit filed on behalf of Chinese students in San Francisco, that school districts have to provide education for students whose English is limited. It did not mandate bilingual education, but it established a duty to provide instruction that the students could understand. Right. And so the 1970 amendments to the Voting Rights Act permanently outlawed literacy tests in all 50 states and mandated bilingual ballots or oral assistance for those who speak Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, or Native American languages. So Asian Americans and Latinos, they have also been concerned about the impact of immigration laws on their civil rights. Many Asian American and Latino organizations opposed the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 because it imposed sanctions on employers who hire undocumented workers. And such sanctions, they feared, would lead employers to discriminate against Latinos and Asian Americans. And these suspicions were confirmed in a 1990 report by the General Accounting Office that found employer sanctions had created a widespread pattern of discrimination against Latinos and others who appear for it. So, but the Justice Department challenged uh, some laws back in Arizona, 2010. They had a law that required immigrants to carry identity documents with them at all times and made it a crime for, un for an undocumented immigrant to apply for a job, gave the police greater powers to stop anyone they suspected of being an unauthorized immigrant, and required the police to check the immigration status of a person they detain if they suspect that person is an unauthorized immigrant. So the Justice Department challenged this law on the grounds that the federal government is responsible for making immigration law, not the states. The court did let, did let stand the provision that required local police to check immigration status of an individual detained for other reasons if they had grounds to suspect that the person was in the country illegally. So, as a language minority, Native Americans were affected by the 1975 amendments to the Voting Rights Act and the Lao decision. The Lao decision established the right of Native Americans to be taught in their own languages. This marked quite a change from the period when Native American children attended boarding schools run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where they were forbidden from speaking their own languages. In addition to these language-related issues, Native Americans have sought to expand their rights on the basis of their sovereign status. Since the 1920s and 30s, Native American tribes have sued the federal government for illegally seizing land, seeking monetary reparations and land as damages. Both types of damages have been awarded in suits, but only in small amounts. Native American tribes have been more successful in winning them to exercise greater self-determination. Most significant economically was a 1987 Supreme Court decision that freed Native American tribes from most state regulations prohibiting gambling. So the establishment of casino gambling on Native American lands has brought a substantial flow of new income into some desperately poor reservations. The concept of rights for the disabled began to emerge in the 1970s as the civil rights model spread to other groups. The seed was planted in a little notice provision of the 
1973 Rehabilitation Act, which outlawed discrimination against individuals on the basis of disabilities. As in many other cases, the law itself helped give rise to the movement demanding rights for the disabled. Modeling it on the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, the disability movement founded the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund to press its legal claims. Movement achieved its greatest success with the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. This guarantees equal employment rights and access to public business for the disabled and bars discrimination in employment, housing, and healthcare as well. The EEOC is Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It is a body that considers the claims of discrimination and violation of this act and also the Civil Rights Act and others that we've talked about. The impact of the law has been far-reaching as businesses and public facilities, they've had to install ramps, elevators, other devices to meet the act's requirements. And in less than 50 years, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer movement has become one of the largest civil rights movements in contemporary America. For much of the country's history, any sexual orientation other than heterosexuality was considered deviant, and many states criminalized sexual acts considered to be unnatural. Gay people were often afraid to reveal their sexual orientation for fear of reprisals, including being fired from their jobs, and the police in many cities raided bars and other establishments where it was believed that gay people gathered. While no formal restrictions existed on their political participation, gay people faced the possibility of ostracism, discrimination, assault, and even prosecution. So the contemporary gay rights movement began in earnest in the 1960s. It grew into a well-financed and sophisticated lobbying group. But until 1996, there was no Supreme Court ruling or national legislation explicitly protecting gays and lesbians from discrimination. First gay rights case the court decided was Bowers v. Hardwick in 1986. It ruled against a right of privacy that would protect consensual homosexual activity. After that decision, the gay and lesbian rights movement sought suitable legal cases to test the constitutionality of discrimination against gay men and lesbians, much as the black civil rights movement did in the late 1940s and 50s. So in 1996, the Supreme Court in Romer v. Evans they explicitly extended fundamental civil rights protections to gays and lesbians by declaring unconstitutional a 1992 amendment to the Colorado State Constitution that prohibited local governments from passing ordinances to protect gay rights. In their decision, the court highlighted the connection between gay rights and civil rights as it declared discrimination against gay people unconstitutional. And the gay community won another major victory with the 2003 case of Lawrence v. Texas where the Supreme Court overturned Bowers and struck down a Texas law that made certain sexual conduct between consenting partners of the same sex illegal. Extending the right to privacy umbrella to lesbians and gay men, the court said that petitioners are entitled to respect for their private lives. The state cannot demean their existence or control their destiny by making their private sexual conduct a crime. So while the ruling in Lawrence struck down laws that made homosexual acts a crime, it didn't change federal and state laws that deprived gay people of full civil rights, including the right to marry. So in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down a federal law, DOMA, or the Defense of Marriage Act, that barred benefits to married same-sex couples and lit standard California law recognizing same-sex marriage. Invoking several constitutional protections, the cases significantly strengthened the rights of married gay couples. 
The federal government subsequently expanded recognition of same-sex marriages for the purposes of federal benefits and legal proceedings such as survivor benefits, bankruptcies, tax purposes, and immigration. In 2015, the Supreme Court clarified the law concerning same-sex marriage. In the landmark case of Burgafell v. Hodges, the court ruled that the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause and the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause guarantees same-sex couples the right to marry in all states and required states to recognize same-sex marriages performed in other jurisdictions. Though deemed controversial, the court's decision actually reflected a shift in public opinion on same-sex unions, with the majority of Americans now favoring the right of same-sex couples to wed. So, that concludes civil rights. Actually, almost forgot one thing, affirmative action. Can't conclude without talking about affirmative action with civil rights, right? But uh, still following on the LGBT rights, uh, President Obama back in 2011, he repealed the U.S. military's don't ask, don't tell policy, which was back from when Clinton was president. He's the one that had enacted that. But affirmative action. So over the past half century, uh, there's been the relatively narrow goal of trying to equalize opportunity by eliminating discriminatory barriers and developing toward the broader goal of affirmative action, which is government policies or programs trying to redress past injustices against specified groups by making special efforts to provide members of these groups with access to educational and employment opportunities. So affirmative action policy is going to be using two approaches approaches. One, positive or benign discrimination in which race or some other status is counted as a positive rather than negative factor. Two, compensatory action to favor members of the disadvantaged group who themselves may never have been the victims of discrimination. Affirmative action uh, took the form of efforts by agencies in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to shift their focus from desegregation to integration. Federal agencies required school districts to present plans for busing children across district lines, for closing certain schools, redistributing faculties as well as students, or face the loss of aid from the federal government. So, now efforts by the government to shape the meaning of affirmative action, it tends to center on one key issue. What is the appropriate level of review in affirmative action case? So that is, on whom should the burden of proof be placed? The plaintiff to show discrimination has not occurred, or the defendant to show that discrimination has actually occurred. Affirmative action was first addressed formally by the Supreme Court in the case called Baca versus the University of California Board of Regents. So, Alan Baca, he was a white male, he brought suit against the University of California Davis Medical School on the grounds that it denied him admission on the basis of race. So that year, the school had reserved 16 of their 100 available slots for minority applicants. And Baca argued that his grades and test scores had ranked him well above many students who had been accepted at the school, and that the only possible explanation for his rejection was that he was white, whereas those others accepted were black or Latino. In 1978, Baca won his case before the Supreme Court. He was admitted to the medical school, medical school, but he did not succeed in getting affirmative action declared unconstitutional. Court accepted the argument that achieving a diverse student body is a compelling public purpose, but it ruled that the method of rigid quota of student slots assigned on the basis of race was incompatible with the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. So the court allows universities and other hiring authorities to continue to take minority status into consideration but bars the use of quotas. 
So I hope that helps explain all of civil liberties and civil rights. Well, probably not all, but at least in a nutshell, right? Hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast. There are more history and government podcasts to come on my new podcast, American History with Professor Cheryl Boswell. Have a great night, folks, and I will come back at you later with another rousing podcast. See ya.